the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it through live history storytelling in Berlin and beyond. I'm Susan Stone, and I am here remotely with Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire. Hey, Katie. Hi, Susan. And also hello to all of you, our lovely audience of new and old friends. Thank you for being with us. So in this episode, we have a rollicking tale from our other co-founder, Florian Dousens. He is an editor and an educator, a culture maven, and a damn good storyteller. He certainly is. He's going to be telling us about an adventurous dead lady who was also a rather keen storyteller. She was a writer and a world traveller driven by curiosity and passion. Florian will be talking about Emily Hahn. Now, one note for you out there. At the start, you're going to hear references to Florian's own travel adventures. Like Emily, he is a very keen traveller. And as you can probably guess, this presentation was recorded more than a year ago, as none of us are really going anywhere at the moment, except in our imaginations. So here's Florian from the stage of Berlin Sakud. So, Emily Hahn. Uh, as we were planning this show, I went to Shanghai um, just a couple of weeks ago. So I started looking for a dead lady who had spent time there so I could read up on her while I was in China. It wasn't long until I came across the prolific Emily Hahn, who was the China Coast correspondent for The New Yorker uh, in the 1930s in Shanghai. Reading her biography and her memoirs, I found out her paths had crossed those of some dead ladies I've presented on this very stage. Anna Mae Wong, for instance, was banned from the bowling club that uh, Emily Hahn went to <laughs> in Shanghai. Uh, not only was Han friends with Dorothy Parker, she'd also been plotting to write a biography uh, of writer and translator Dorothy Sayers. This she was planning to do together with her friend Rebecca West, who we haven't presented yet. And she was inspired by explorer travel writer Mary Kingsley to explore the Congo solo. She published an astonishing 52 books, I mean, plus 181 articles in The New Yorker. Yet I, and I assume many of you, had never heard of her. Who had heard of Emily Hahn? Who, which one of you confused her with Emily Post? Okay, anyway. Um, so how did she end up overlooked? Was it because a great number of her books are about women? Women like pioneer author Afra Ben, reporter Nellie Bly, or diarist Fanny Burney? Because she wrote novels, maybe, about sex work, interracial love, and abortion? or memoirs about addiction, interracial love, and having a child with a married man. Han was born in 1905, the youngest of five girls and one older brother. Uh, she would grow up in a quiet neighborhood in St. Louis. Though both her parents were German Jews, her father was an avowed atheist. Her mother, a proud suffragette, didn't stick to convention. She would ride to work wearing knickers, which are shorts. Knickers are shorts. This is important to know. She believed in fresh air, um, though limiting her kids' reading time to 30 minutes a day, so Emily would hide her books up in a peach tree. Climbed a tree, read her book. Nicknamed Mickey from a very early age, she grew up intimidated by her sister's beauty and boyfriends, so she fully intended to be different. I would be a great animal sculptor, 
or a poet or a violinist or an exceedingly intellectual courtesan, <laughs> she wrote. When her dry goods salesman father moved them to Chicago, a city more than three times as big as St. Louis, teenage Mickey started wearing berets, spending her allowance on riding open double-decker buses uh, by Lake Michigan. As she later wrote, the wind from the great sea was never quite like ordinary air. It had a delicious, foreign smell. But the most enchanting thing about the lake was that you couldn't see to the other side. Convinced she would be a sculptor, like her sister-in-law, Nancy Koonsman, she enrolled at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. The arts program had a science requirement, though, and since she'd heard exciting things about a particular chemistry prof, she signed up for his class, or tried to, only to be denied entry. She wasn't in the engineering program, and uh, that didn't allow women. This is when her mother's spirit and Mickey's own stubbornness kicked in. She writes, before the registrar's office closed that afternoon, I had transferred myself to the College of Engineering, enrolled for the chemistry course I wanted, and sent off a confused letter of explanation to my parents. From that moment on until graduation, I completely forgot that I had not always, from my earliest youth, intended to become a mining engineer. Every day offered fresh reason for forgetting. I was awfully busy for the next three years, up to my neck in mechanics and drafting and calculus. It was enough to make any girl forget a little thing like art. As I look back on it now, I was amazed that I passed any of those examinations. Half the time and energy I should have given to my work was used up in the effort to prove that I could hold my own without being in the way. After college, um, no one would hire a woman mining engineer, so she took a road trip to New Mexico with her friend Dorothy and her new Model T Ford. This at a time when most roads were unpaved and motels had not yet been invented. Not to mention that young women certainly did not travel alone. They brought a gun, uh, slept in their car, and Dorothy cut her hair so that when she wore a cap, it looked like she had sideburns. My parents complained that I was never the same after that summer in the Model T, and no doubt they were right. Mickey would later write, I was restless and discontented at home, and as they said, anything served as an excuse to get away somewhere, even if it was only a weekend in Milwaukee. <laughs> On her return, however, she was stunned to find a job offer as a, as a mining engineer. Um, <laughs> the reality of working as one was disheartening, though, as she was paid less than her male colleagues. Mickey distracted herself by writing, smoking cigars, making homemade gin, ultimately quitting her job to become a tour guide out west. She moved to the artist colony of Taos in New Mexico, rented an adobe hut, got a horse named Tom, and started writing for a greeting card company. <laughs> Needless to say, her family worried. Uh, and one day her mom showed up, uh, offering to pay her grad school tuition if only she would agree to move to New York. <laughs> Tempted by the possibilities, Mickey started at Columbia in 1928, living near Times Square and teaching geology at Hunter College to pay her bills. Terrified of getting stuck in a dead-end job, she jumped at the chance to write articles for local papers. Writing to her mom, 
It came at just the right time. I was all worked up about what a useless bum I turned out to be, and I was all ready to accept that gracefully. I had a mental picture of myself as a picturesque and beautiful beachcomber dying all over Honolulu of a combination of hashish and theosophy. <laughs> Mickey got a monkey, who, who she named Punk, and took to all the speakeasies. Uh, then an acceptance letter from the New Yorker. Funny thing though, she hadn't submitted any work. In fact, her brother-in-law had been sending excerpts from her letters for years. Uh, little arias of the casual, Roger Angel wrote in her obituary uh, many, many years later. This first one uh, that appeared in the New Yorker starts as follows. You know, I suddenly said, much to my own horror, you're a funny person to be married to him. An intriguing opening line, especially when you know Mickey actually said it to Leslie Nast, who is the young and lesbian wife of the New Yorker competitor, Condé Nast, who now own the New Yorker, I guess. So, New Yorker editor Harold Ross congratulated her for being the bitchiest writer he, he knew, uh, apart from maybe Rebecca West, and then rejected her three next articles. Mickey commiserated with her new friend, Dorothy Parker, crying in a bathroom. She would suffer depression on and off during her life, but now in 1929, just when the stock market had crashed and New Yorkers were lining up for soup kitchens, it all got too much. And Mickey decided to take an overdose of sleeping pills. Her sister found her in time, thank God, and Mickey went to start over in London. There she made a lot of new friends, mostly gay dancers, who would introduce her thusly. This is Mickey from New York. She's straight. <laughs> Meanwhile, her first book came out, Seductio at Absurdum, The Principles and Practices of Seduction, a Beginner's Handbook. <laughs> the press was clamoring for interviews with this satirical, it was satire, um, and sex-positive flapper, and Mickey delivered, stating, for instance, I don't mean that there should be no relationship between the sexes, but there should be various relationships. Mickey knew, however, that she had too much competition on the flapper writing circuit, so she borrowed some money and set off for the Belgian Congo. Carrying only the barest of essentials um, and heaps and heaps of typing paper. She traveled into the heart of the country, staying with a white friend who worked there as a doctor and, as she found out, had taken three local women for wives. Mickey lived there for a year, broke, uh, unable to leave, learning the Swahili dialect, helping out at the clinic, adopting Angelique, a pet baboon, and caring for an abandoned orphan. When she learned of her host's abusive tendencies towards his wives, however, she decided to skip town, carrying only a few of her things and making her way to Tanzania on foot with a dozen local guides. There were no roads, they did not know the way, uh, but they survived. And Mickey headed back to the crisis-stricken New York. Mickey went up north to Woodstock where she wrote, Congo Solo, Misadventures Two Degrees North, a rather censored memoir of her year in Africa, and she also wrote With Naked Foot, a novel <laughs> that told the real story of the local women suffering at the hands of white men. 
the press was stunned that she didn't follow the usual sort of explorer narrative. Not one attempt at rape, they pleaded, no mutiny in the camp, and nowhere that you could have called yourself the first white woman to have set foot. Her father, meanwhile, was deathly ill, but the doctors wouldn't end his suffering, so Mickey used her medical training from Congo to end his life with a morphine injection. 28 and unsure of what to do with her life, she started seeing a slick, married Hollywood screenwriter who gave her a job writing dialogue in LA for a bit. One day he got drunk and beat her for smoking a joint. Shattered, she decided to join her sister, who was also struggling in her marriage, in a trip to the Far East. From there, she planned to go on back to Africa. They were only supposed to be in Shanghai for a week, or maybe less, but Mickey decided to stay. In 1935, Shanghai drew both celebrities and refugees. You didn't need a passport, and a tailored suit cost one dollar. Still, there were only 60,000 foreigners in a city of four million, and Mickey, the author, was a celebrity, especially charming Victor Sassoon, a Jewish businessman and hotelier who made his millions trading in Shanghai. He liked to take revealing pictures of the local ladies, and Mickey happily obliged. The picture that I'm showing you is slightly revealing. Uh, the actual nudes um, were supposedly destroyed in like a, some teenage, not a prank, but like temper tantrum, a teenage temper tantrum by Mickey's daughter, who was very embarrassed that these pictures existed. Uh, Mickey got an apartment in a Chinese bank building. She started writing for the New Yorker and a local paper and became one of the few foreigners to socialize with the Chinese elite there. At a literary party, she quickly fell for the poet, publisher, and utter dreamboat, Shao Shunmei, who charmed her by improvising, yes. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> he's very distracting. Um, who charmed her by improvising the following epitaph for a famous writer. Villagers, please don't fuck. Here lies Pearl S. Buck. He soon introduced her to his lovely wife and children and to smoking opium. Mickey fell into a luxurious routine, writing her articles, plus editing a few journals, Fortune May, though her family was pleading with her to come back as the Japanese army had just invaded and was occupying Manchuria and other parts of northern China. Mickey liked her life. The jade jewelry, the tailored clothes, the massages, the lovers the 10 or 11 pipes of opium a day. Plus, she just gotten a new monkey. <laughs> oh, this is her looking glamorous. And this is Mr. Mills, her monkey. All this would change by 1937 when the Japanese invaded the rest of China and conquered Shanghai. Mickey moved to the city's foreign enclave where she was safer, but the Japanese considered Shunmei an enemy as he was connected to Chinese guerrilla fighters. Frantic, he asked uh, Mickey to marry him, polygamy still being legal in China at the time, so that his printing press and other possessions would also belong to her, an untouchable foreigner. Mickey said yes, knowing that the document wouldn't hold up in court outside of China anyway. Eager for a new book project, Mickey asked her husband to introduce her to the Sung sisters, China's richest and most influential women of the 1930s, one of whom married Sun Yat-sen, another Chiang Kai-shek, I think the latter also went to Bennington in the US. The next few months, Mickey flew in and out of war zones near Chongqing to do research and interview the three sisters. 
In the meantime, Chinese friends were disappearing left and right. Mickey was 35, her teeth hurt, her periods were becoming irregular, and she was turning yellow. Her addiction was catching up with her. She tried to quit. It wasn't as bad as I'd expected. My stomach was upset and my legs hurt. Still, it, it wasn't so bad. I, I didn't want to lie down and scream. It, it could be born. The only really bad thing was the terror I felt of being lost, astray, naked, shivering in the world that seemed imminently brutal. A friendly doctor set up rehab treatment, and Mickey got through it. Needing a change, she moved to Hong Kong, from where she would continue her research. In a flat next door lived Charles Boxer, the local head of British intelligence and author of scholarly books on historical trade in the region. He'd long admired her work and now confessed he admired her as well, promising to marry her as soon as he divorced his estranged wife. <laughs> Scandalously, she soon shacked up with him. It was 1941, but even though many of the wives were being shipped off to safety, Mickey wanted to stay at Charles's side especially since she was pregnant. Two weeks past her due date, uh, the doctor decided on a cesarean, asking Mickey, how much of this do you want to feel before we help you? Stunned, she responded, did you think I was doing all this to write a book about it? The doctor shrugged, why yes, isn't that the idea? They called the baby Carola Militia Boxer. Char Charles came from a very military family. Soon after, his wife filed for divorce, yet they would have to wait longer than the mandatory six months before they could get married. On Christmas, the Japanese attacked Hong Kong, and within three weeks, the governor surrendered. Severely injured in the battle, Charles was soon imprisoned, uh, and Mickey ordered to leave. She scrambled, claiming she was Chinese. She was, after all, married to a Chinese citizen. The Japanese in charge knew that this wasn't entirely kosher. Um, they'd had dinner with her and her and Charles many times before. But they let Mickey stay as long as she agreed to teach a few elite Japanese officers English. The food they paid her with would prove indispensable. Though her book on the Sungs and her stories about a character she based on Shunmei did very well in the US, her healthy bank account was inaccessible from occupied Hong Kong. She had to rely on the cash and jewelry she'd had on hand to provide for Corolla, herself, her servants, all of this with black market trading. Everyone was urging Mickey to get out, but she couldn't leave Charles, who she'd been sneaking much-needed food to in his prison camp. Making sure that Charles didn't starve was my whole existence, save for the effort I put in at home to seeing that Corolla, too, was adequately fed, Mickey wrote. My universe shrank to the dimensions of a digestive tube. There was nothing else to think about, no world outside, nothing. By 1943, the Japanese were urging her to come write propaganda in Tokyo, and her situation became desperate. A prisoner exchange on a Swedish boat, her only option left. After eight years in China, Mickey was finally going back to America, carrying a daughter who spoke fluent Cantonese, but hardly any English. Charles was still held in the camp. On arrival in New York, she immediately bought a typewriter and started filing stories, asking a promising young doctor called Spock um, how to help her undernourished daughter. Simple, he said, spoil her. Mickey published a memoir, China to Me, detailing her affairs, her addiction, her unmarried motherhood, all of it. With her foul mouth and fat cigars, she became a celebrity. 
earning $20,000 in 1944 alone, which would come out to about 300K. Mickey was not doing well, though, despite her nice townhouse. Rumors were swirling about Charles having been killed. She suffered a mysterious tropical disease and briefly got addicted to morphine, going cold turkey right on time when, in 1945, she finally received the following letter from Charles. It is quite impossible to put down in writing all of the million things that I want to ask you, and I won't even try, but please let me know. A, do you still feel I am the same as in 1943, or have you got someone else? B, if you still feel the same, where and when shall we meet and marry? C, like Darcy in the trial, or is it the penultimate chapter of Pride and Prejudice? My own sentiments and feelings are unchanged, but one word from you will silence me forever on the subject. I know. <laughs> he sailed to New York, and within a week of this reunion picture from Life magazine, they married, moving to his ancestral estate in Dorset, England. Mickey was no housewife, though. It isn't that I can't mop and dust and sweep and cook and wash and iron. <laughs> I can. I even like some of it, the cooking and ironing. It's just that there are often so many other things I would rather be doing at that particular moment <laughs> that I grow first resentful, then furious. <laughs> One day of dusting, making beds, and washing Corolla's clothes leaves me in a state of boiling rage which is no less hot because I can't find a suitable object to vent it on. You can't square off and kick a house in the pants. <laughs> in 1948, Mickey was pregnant again, age 44, another girl, Amanda, but Mickey suffered postpartum depression and dreary England didn't help. By 1950, arch gossip Walter Winchell was reporting that Mickey and Charles were getting a divorce. But instead, they decided on a very unusual solution, sticking to it for the rest of their lives. For 90 days each year, Mickey would be with Charles in England, the maximum before having to pay income tax. <laughs> the other days, she'd be in the US or traveling. Corolla would go to boarding school. Amanda would stay with her nanny. Free to write, Mickey became a staff writer at The New Yorker, filing stories from Brazil, Malaysia, Taiwan, the Azores, Turkey, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Japan, etc., etc. She would have an office there for an astonishing 45 years, arriving every weekday at 7 a.m. to write countless articles and piles of books before she died of complications during a surgery for a shattered femur in 1995, aged 92. Books on Matahari, diamonds, bohemianism, Ireland, D.H. Lawrence, Chinese cuisine, angels, zoos, female, primato <laughs> female primatologists, and her own personal favorite, Look Who's Talking on Animal-Human Communication. If you want to know more about Mickey, her memoirs are a great place to start. No Hurry to Get Home provides the greatest overview of her life. China to Me and Hong Kong Holiday tackle her years in the Far East. There's also a great biography by Ken Cuthbertson called Nobody Said Not to Go. <laughs> <laughs> the Life, Loves, and Adventures of Emily Han and uh, Shanghai Grand by Teres Gresko, which focuses on her love triangle with Shun Mei and Sassoon. 
I'd like to leave you tonight with some words from her history of the American women's movement, which was called Once Upon a Pedestal, and she ended it as follows. So there, at the start of 1974, we stand, down on the floor with the boys. Women now have a chance to arrange their lives both economically and biologically. There are still many awkwardnesses, of course, but things are definitely looking up. We've had the vote for a long time, and in law, we also have equal rights. Though as to that, there are still some ragged edges to be trimmed, a lot of discrimination to expose. We have a long time to wait, of course, before everything is all right. I find it impossible myself to keep out of my approach to life anger against men. But utopia is on the way, given luck and vigilance, vigilance. Thank you. Lauren Dowsons on Emily, a.k.a. Mickey, Han. So recently, one of our Twitter pals, Spies and Vespers, posted a picture of Emily Hahn. And when I told them we had an episode coming up about her, they said, are you going to talk about her as a spy? And I said to Florian, did you talk about her as a spy? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that wasn't really part of the story. But I was intrigued by this question. So I did a little searching. And then I found this really fabulous New Yorker article from 2017 featuring Carola Vecchio, who is Emily's oldest daughter, who was mentioned. Um, so it's written by Terrace Gresco, who is the author of Shanghai Grand, and that's one of the books that Florian cites at the end of his talk. And in his research, uh, Gresco talks about finding a mysterious square of white silk amongst Han's papers in the Lilly Library in Bloomington, Indiana, of all places. It was typed from edge to edge with messages, and it had been found sewn into two-year-old Corolla's dress when mother and daughter traveled to the U.S. from occupied China in 1943. But that's crazy. It is. It is quite crazy. And, uh, I mean, it really is, like, typed with these little letters from corner to corner. So Han was suspected of spying for the Japanese government, and she was then detained for several hours, and that Silk Square was sent to Washington for FBI investigation. Now, in the end, the typed lines revealed not coded secrets, but lines of poetry and names and heartfelt messages for friends and relatives of Han's circle, many oh. of whom were being held in uh, U.S. internment camps. Right. Now, Han's daughter, uh, Carola, said of the incident, for my mother, it was all a big adventure. And she also said that she didn't mind being used as a prop for smuggling <laughs> <laughs> any more than she took offense at being fictionalized as a boarding school girl named Monica in her mother's short stories for The New Yorker. So Han herself once said, I use people. People who mind should stay away from writers. I think that they do on the whole. <laughs> Oh, those writers. By the way, if any of you are fans of the books, films, or social media accounts from Advanced Style, do you know them, Katie? I do. They're all quite fabulous, and they document these fashionable elderly ladies and gents. You may have actually seen Carola Vecchio. So she's appeared several times in the uh, various photos wearing golden gloves or a flowered hat that actually once belonged to Emily Han, her mother. Oh or elegant Chinese robes that really harken back to the place of her birth, which was Hong Kong. Wow. We'll have links and photos for you at our website, deadladieshow.com, and on our social media, 
at Dead Ladies Show. And make sure you check out Emily's menagerie of monkeys and some of her rather amusing book covers. If you enjoy our podcast, please do share us with friends, family and more. The delightful music in the background is our theme song, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thanks to Katie and Florian and everybody out there listening. See you next time. Say bye-bye. See you next time. See you next time. Whatever. Just cut that bit. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Zenat.